Well, Dana Johansson is RNZ sports correspondent. Kia ora, Dana. Kia ora, Catherine. Enough to talk about today, do you think? Quite a lot, yeah. It's that funny time of year when you've got the uh, cricket-rugby crossover, so heaps going on. Yeah, how are you dealing with that clash? Which oh, one's look. on delay? <laughs> yeah, look, it's tough, but we'll get through it. <laughs> okay. Just good planning. Okay, Super Rugby Pacific gets underway tonight. Let's start with um, with uh, the, the issue you've been reporting on this morning, Dana. Um, we had an interview about this innovation with the mouth guards with the uh, Otago University academic who was involved in the trial of them. And at the time, there was a hint that there might be some bush pushback from the players. But just tell us the basic story about what World Rugby is requiring now of of its professional players. Yeah, yeah, you're quite right. This technology has been around for quite a while and, and Otago University has have really led the way in that study. Um, but kind of more recently, um, the technology has become available that um, the instrument and mouth guards which measure head impacts or, or the sort of acceleration of, of head in, during collisions, um, it can sort of give readings in real time and that's allowed um, the ability for for the app to sort of ping if if, if a collision is, is, of, of, is of concern and the match day doctor can intervene and, and bring the player off for a head injury assessment. So World Rugby has now mandated the use of this technology um, as of January 1, so this will be the first time tonight when the Super Rugby players run out that, that they've had a, the, the use of it. Um, and really the concerns are around the speed of the rollout. It was used for the first time in the, in the HIA protocols in the women's WXV competition late last year and there were quite a few teething problems with it. Um, the Black Ferns opener against France in particular was quite chaotic. Um, there were five players removed from the field for an HIA and, and the medical staff of course became quite overwhelmed having to do those assessments and of course it, it wreaks havoc on team substitution plans doesn't it so of course players and coaches were, were kind of upset about that disruption um, the other complaints that include that the mouth guards are a bit clunky and uncomfortable to wear it can be hard to sort of communicate with one another when they're in um, and more broadly there's sort of ethical concerns about the increased surveillance of players and, and who owns the data. There's also a compulsion to this is there not it's not like it's optional. Absolutely, it's, it's been mandated um, and also to the point where they have to wear it in training throughout the week and uh, if, if they're not complying with that then what will happen is if um, the, the um, instrumented mouth guard does ping an alert um, that player will be removed from the field and will not allow to come, be come back on so they won't be able to take part in the HIA assessment and, and then potentially come back on it'll be an immediate removal and substitution. All right. Uh, so, look, that's, that remains kind of a, a bit of consternation at this stage, or is there more serious resistance planned? No, I think there's just a, a few concerns, but I think there's also the acceptance that, um, you know, looking after player welfare and, and mitigating the, those concussion risks is, is a good thing. It's just that there's a, a bit of concern that it's been rushed into use. But I imagine that over time the system will be fine-tuned, and, of course, once they have more data, they'll be able to more readily sort of enact things. A number of big-name players have left New Zealand shores following the Rugby World Cup. Uh, so what does that mean for local competitions? What should we be looking out for? 
Yeah, it's it's that time in the in the life cycle of rugby where a whole new wave of players um, will, will come back in this season, which will be really exciting to watch. Um, there's a, there's there's a number to look out for. Um, one of the ones was Sam Kane being on sabbatical. Uh, Simon Parker is one of the names being talked up. He's expected to fill in those massive shoes at the Chiefs at the in the open side role. Um, ahead of the season, Clayton McMillan described him as as a real player to watch. Uh, the other one I'm, I'll be looking out for is the Blues. They have a pretty stacked backline this season, but um, one of the names I'm quite excited for is Zahn Sullivan. He he was getting a bit of game time towards the end of last season, um, earning some consistent time in that fullback spot. Um, He's an incredibly dynamic player, so it'd be great to see what he can do with more consistent game time. Um, and, of course, not a new name, but um, the, the kind of real race this season will be who can take up that, that All Blacks first five spot. And Damien McKenzie is obviously the front runner for that, um, following the departure of Richie Moanga and, and Bowden Barrett also on sabbatical. So, um, yeah, that's shaping up as a big storyline this year. It'll be interesting to see how it goes. They've, they've um, sort of innovated so much around that first five position, haven't they? Um, and they've had a, actually they've just had so much choice to be honest in that uh, in that role as well. Um, of course, a high profile re- retirement, and as you say, mooring away as well. You'd think Damien McKenzie had the had the dibs on it, uh, but this yeah. is the point. This is the chance for new talent to get their break. Absolutely. Mackenzie is by far and away the most experienced um, player in, in the, the next crop coming through. Um, there's Stephen Petalfetter as well at the Blues and another name is, is Fergus Blake at the Crusaders. So with Moanga gone, as you say, um, he can now step into that role and, and let's see what he can deliver. Of course, there's some changes in the coaching lineup. Uh, the Crusaders' chief has gone on to another job, uh, so yes. that's another factor to have in the back of our minds as the, as the, you know, the sort of the headline teams face off against each other. Speaking of which, a bit of a grudge match to launch things tonight. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, well, yeah, it's been talked up as a, as a grudge match given. Um, you know, it still rankles in the Chiefs camp that they fell at the final hurdle last year after such a brilliant season. Um, so I imagine they'll be out to make a statement in Game 1 against the Crusaders tonight. Uh, the Crusaders camp aren't really buying into that talk, though. They say it's a new season and a new coach under Rob Penny. Um, so in a new group, of course. So um, they they say what happened oh, last year. Oh come on, that's red and black. <laughs> I know that's red and black. Give me a break. <laughs> but anyway, very constructive, positive um, uh, coach talk around that. Um, seriously, with the amount of changes that has been, are we going to get an even contest? I don't know. It's just so hard to tell in these early season games. And, you know, the Crusaders, the last couple of seasons, they've actually been slow starters. So, um, and, and the Chiefs have, have really hit the ground running. So, yeah, I, I mean, whatever the outcome, I don't think we can. Last season showed us anything. It's that we can't read it too much into the results in, in these opening rounds. Let's get on to the cricket, and it was an absolute ripper, wasn't it? The Wednesday night game. Great to have a beautiful evening in the capital at the stadium. Uh, Never quite the same at the stadium when there's empty seats uh, for a match like this, and in a last minute, res- uh, last ball result. Great start to this series, Dana. Yeah, that was an amazing game, wasn't it? That um, not quite the result we were after, but holy, that was that was a pretty phenomenal finish. Um, and now it, it goes to Eden Park, so they've got the the, the final two games of the T Twenty series. Uh, the first ones tonight, and then on Sunday, and they're sort of hoping for around fifty thousand across the two games. So let's hope the Black Caps can keep the series alive tonight um, and really set it up for Sunday. Mm. They didn't quite have enough runs on the board. I know two fifteen sounds like a lot in a in a in a 
2020, especially against the calibre of Australia, but it is the calibre of Australia that means you've got to protect against those big, big overs that came in at the end. Uh, good to, you know, have a little bit of... We, we don't quite do the niggle the way the Aussies do, do we? But um, there was a bit of niggle surrounding David Warner. He um, he tried to rack, he tried to rack up a Kiwi crowd. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he he definitely got the the fans fired up a little bit with his pre pre series uh, comments, but I do wonder if his you know perhaps a little bit hypocritical from him. Um, he described New Zealand crowds as derogatory and vulgar, um, and you know while you hate to see players experiencing abuse, um, Warner's comments do seem a little bit rich. Um, you might remember he's been involved with several pretty ugly sledging incidents over the years. Um, the one that stands out in my mind is uh, that confrontation he had with India's Rohit Sharma in 2014 when he appeared to tell his opponent to speak English. Um, and there's been several off-field altercations with players over the years and, of course, we can't forget Sandpapergate. So um, while it's great his comments have added spice to the series, perhaps, um, yeah, he might want to pipe down a bit. But I don't think there's much chance <laughs> of that happening. Now, yeah. another story uh, that you've been following for many years, actually, and with respect to the high-performance sport New Zealand stable of athletes uh, under individual um, uh, responsibility, of course, whether it's rowers or, or canoeists or whomever, but there have been some real issues with athlete welfare, cycling's another, our real issues with athlete welfare, uh, and, and a long-time a long time movement to say, look, these are these people's full-time jobs and careers and incomes, and they should be able to organise. It looked like there'd been a big breakthrough for Mahi Drysdale's Athletes Cooperative, but High Performance Sport New Zealand saying, no, we, we're going to resist this idea of a collective contract. What's the latest? Yeah, it's a, a bit of an intriguing legal rematch shaping up. So um, the Athletes Cooperative, which represents around 60 of the country's top rowers and cyclists, uh, took a case to the Employment Relations Authority uh, last year um, in an attempt to force high-performance sport to collectively bargain with it. Um, they actually won that, that case. The um, decision was released earlier this year. Um, but High Performance Sport just this week have indicated that they are going to appeal that decision, um, so it will now go to the Employment Court. Um, they, High Performance Sport said that they sought a second legal opinion um, from a KC, no less, um, and it believes that, that there are concerning implications to this decision, not just for High Performance Sport, but other government departments. For example, what would it mean if um, you get a government grant for the arts or something like that? So that's the argument they're pushing. Um, it, it, I mean, I think it feels like it's just dragged on a lot at this point. And, and what I find quite interesting is that um, at this point, High Performance Sport have commissioned a number of reviews into the space, um, dating back even to six years ago when Stephen Cottrell did a sort of overarching piece of work on elite athlete rights and welfare in 2018. And he sort of concluded that athlete welfare will not fundamentally improve unless high-performance sport addresses the imbalance in bargaining power between the athletes and sports leaders. Um, and, and, you know, only a couple of years back after the, the tragedy of Olivia Podmore, Mike Heron undertook another review into cycling and he also implored sports leaders to look at this employer-employee model and he said it's not impossible. Now there's an ERA decision telling high-performance sport to engage in collective bargaining and it's still looking for outs. Um, I guess they see it as unworkable and far too expensive and they will argue 
it could potentially impact athlete welfare even further because it would reduce the number of athletes it can potentially support. So, um, yeah, it will be an interesting case. But, of course, being the employment court, a lot of these points won't be argued. It will be on the finer points of employment law, which I am no expert in. How does this compare to the professional contracts that New Zealand cricket has, say, um, and finally extended to women players eventually, um, or or New Zealand rugby, which, of course, is very organised with its very powerful uh, players' union? Are we talking about similar sorts of things, or is it the collective... Yeah, well, is it same, same or different? Yeah, that, that's certainly the model that um, that the, the athletes' cooperative are looking to go down. Um, of course, there is not as much money flowing into these sports as there is with cricket and rugby, um, but the principles remain the same. They want to be able to collectively bargain and you know unionise in a sense because it's so difficult for an individual athlete to, you know, when the entire sort of career and their chance to wear the fern and represent New Zealand and go away to an Olympic Games rests with um, this with the sports organisation, they're not going to push back in clauses in their mm. contract. They're not in a position to do that. And so Dana, it's not just about money. It's not it's even not. about money primarily. It's about those welfare issues. It's it's about, you know, the, the same kind of working rights that most people have um, over, over issues like bullying, and we know that has been an issue over issues like um, uh, a sexual harassment policy, and we know that's been an issue. It's, it, it, it's, uh, it's, it's about those player or, or, or athlete welfare issues as much as anything, I imagine. Yeah, and it's having proper independent representation to be able to deal with those issues when they crop up. Um, yeah, it's, as you say, not just about money. It's about being able to have a say in the environment and, and training conditions and all those types of things that employers or employees rather take for granted. Okay, Stacey Jones announced as the new Kiwis coach this week. I mean, he is, it's an overused word, but he's an absolute icon of the sport. Uh, this was interesting. Um, the, the, the famous Aussie coach, his name's just gone out of my head. Oh, Wayne Bennett. Wayne Bennett. He, he put his hand up for this, which is kind of intriguing. But what's happened with the decision and how was it explained? Yeah, yeah. Wayne Bennett, um, of course, has, has some association with the Kiwis previously. He was part of that famous... Um, t- 2008 World Cup victory, um, which I remember very fondly. He's a a, a legend in Australia. He's kind of monosyllabic, I think, isn't he? Yeah, he's very (laughs) much celebrated for his... talking on the field, yeah. (laughs) He's celebrated for his kind of old-school sensibilities, I guess you'd say. Um, But the the New Zealand Rugby League announced this week the the role had gone to Stacey Jones, um, and he is obviously held in high esteem. He's one of the greatest halfbacks the Kiwis have produced and a very good strategist. Um, But it was still considered a bit of a risk to take him on as he doesn't quite have the experience of other candidates. I mean, who does have the experience of Wayne Bennett? Um, But with Bennett, I did wonder about his cultural competency for the role, you know, in in 2024. Last season, I'm not sure if you recall, there was a story presented, and it was kind of presented in this fun, jovial way about... um, a young Kiwis player named Valence Tefati, who Bennett uh, called Val Smith. And this story was repeated around all the networks as this kind of, you know, great yarn about um, the kind of banter in, in the team. But I was like, hang on a minute. Um, you know, why are we celebrating a guy that can't be bothered pronouncing his own player's surname correctly. Um, so I found that attitude really disappointing, particularly given the work the NRL have done in trying to foster a more inclusive environment for Māori Pacifica and Indigenous players. And so, yeah, I did wonder whether he would be right to take on that Kiwi stewardship. So in the meantime, um, Stacey's 
uh, Stacey Jones, well, does reputation matter? A lot of it is about respect. It's about building a culture and a belief in a team, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And while he doesn't have um, any experience as an international head coach, he has you know, served his apprenticeship for many years in that Warriors environment. Um, obviously, he has great mana. He's a great strategist um, and you know, an incredible playmaker in his day. So I'd be, I'd, I am really excited to see what he can produce as, as a Kiwis head coach. I think it's great that they're backing one of their own. Nui, thank you very much for that. That is Dana Johansson, who is RNZ's sports correspondent.